Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. We need to take a look at what is commonly known as group therapy. We all know that it is widely used, but let's examine it a little bit more in, in greater detail. Holly Katch is a psychologist, and indeed she's the clinical and training director at the Falk Center for Counseling in Boca Raton, Florida. Dr. Katz, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Dr. Strauss. Some people will think that it's just a group of people who are sitting around chit-chatting, but it's not like that at all. It really is a therapeutic modality. Can you just talk about generally what group therapy is? Certainly. It certainly is not just people sitting around and chit-chatting. The way that group therapy works is that by being in a group, we create a very safe, supportive environment where clients who are members of the group learn to trust each other. In that supportive environment, there's an opportunity for people to become authentic and to express feelings, emotions, ideas that they would never express to others outside in a social situation. So when you say chit-chat and you can imagine that if I were at a party and I had somebody come up to me who was telling me about their latest business deal and how much money they made and this was somebody that I really wasn't that fond of, I would still probably either say, wow, that's great, or in a social situation or chit-chatting, I might make an excuse to go get some more punch. But in group therapy, you have the opportunity to really learn from each other and to become honest and to give honest feedback and get honest feedback with the help of a trained group therapist. Does group therapy follow a particular theoretical orientation or a model, or does it also come in a great number of styles and approaches? There are a lot of different theoretical orientations to group therapy. So there are group therapy models that are based on what we call a client-centered model, where the primary tool of change is validation. We have group therapy that may fall in more of a, what we call a psychodynamic model, where really the element of change is more about interpretation. There may be a group therapy that's really more skills-based, where the purpose of the group therapy is to teach and enhance skills that the clients may need building because of skill deficit. Would that be like anger management or relaxation groups? Exactly. In an anger management group, for example, the clients would be taught skills to control their anger. So they may actually, in the context of the group, practice relaxation. They may learn different ways of processing information. They may actually role play with the other clients, how to handle a difficult situation and to act without becoming very, very angry or certainly at least acting on that anger. So that would be another type of group. We often hear the term group process used in reference to group therapy. Can you explain a little bit more what that is? And I guess there's a second question attached here, actually. How is that different than going into individual psychotherapy? Those are two different questions. Okay. So let me address both of those. First of all, the way that group process works is that what's happening among the members, the interpersonal dynamics that occur in the group actually very often become more important than the content of what is expressed. So what happens with group process is that the trained group therapist really is focusing on what we call the here and now. They're looking at the exchanges that occur among the different members. For example, if a woman decides to share details of a very exciting sexual escapade that occurred the night before, 
what would be important is not just the details of that, but what is making her bring that out now? Why is she choosing to share that information? Maybe she felt diminished before. Maybe she felt that she was boring the other clients. So it looks at what is happening in the moment as opposed to just the content of what's happening. And that's really what group process is about. And it's really the responsibility of the group therapist to be able to provide reflections of the group process and so that people can really learn from that experience. This is a lot of privacy that's being revealed in a very public way. How does the therapist handle the fact that very touchy issues are now being said in somewhat of a public format? Certainly, the group therapist cannot guarantee that the other clients will not speak outside of group. The therapists themselves certainly are, are obligated to maintain confidentiality, except in extreme circumstances where they were concerned, for example, if somebody was to harm themselves or somebody else. But they certainly ask the other group members to maintain confidentiality. And group members do that. They get the importance of maintaining that privacy. The way that a group can be most effective is that the more cohesive the group, the more effective the group. Groups really become an entity into themselves, and there is a sense of we-ness of the group. That really certainly helps to maintain the privacy because everybody else really are outsiders of the group, and that connection to others is what helps to promote change. In group therapy, what if new members come into the group or old ones leave? How much of an issue is the change in the group population? That's an excellent question. The first type of group is what we call a closed group. So what that means is that all the members start session one together. They attend group sessions typically weekly for a certain amount of time, let's say 12 sessions, and then everybody ends together. In that group, we would not have people coming and going, but the group would have the same members week after week. In contrast, open groups are where the group may last for years and years and years, but the members change. And the way that it happens is that anybody may join at any time, and the group really needs to accommodate to the new members. That sometimes creates some stress in the group because you might have many people that have been working together and trust each other for a certain amount of time, and then a new member is added, and how are they going to let that person be absorbed in the group? And that's something that creates a challenge but also creates an opportunity for the group members. The other kind of neat thing about the opportunity of an open group is that you have an opportunity to see somebody who perhaps is farther along long in their psychological development or the gains that they have made. So you come into the group and I'm feeling, for example, like I'm really depressed every day. I don't know if I can see any light at the end of the tunnel. And there's somebody in the group who's been there maybe nine months and they can tell me, wow, you know, I was just like you when I joined this group and now I'm feeling so much better. And that creates what we call one of the therapeutic group factors which is installation of hope. That's actually one of the benefits of an open group. But there are benefits to both types of groups. How would somebody who is feeling some sort of psychological stress choose to go into group or into individual therapy? At our center, for example, whomever seeking treatment would actually come through a comprehensive initial evaluation process. And during that initial evaluation, the treatment team would really look at the issues that are being presented and make a determination as to what would be in the best interest of the client. After a client completes the initial evaluation process, we would take a look at what are the issues being presented and what kind of treatment would the client best be suited for. 
that would be my recommendation rather somebody deciding for themselves what they're best suited for. We actually look more at exclusion criteria for groups rather than even inclusion criteria. So, for example, somebody who is going through an acute crisis would probably not be appropriate for a group. If they just lost somebody in a tragic accident, for example, last week, probably that's something that would be better suited for individual therapy. If you had somebody who really had trouble empathizing with others or really wasn't able to give or receive feedback or in a process group, for example, you need a certain degree of psychological mindedness to really be able to benefit from the group, that would be somebody who would probably be better suited for individual therapy. But the two are not mutually exclusive. You can really have somebody assigned to both individual and group therapy, and sometimes the different therapists, the individual therapists, and the group therapists can communicate and work together to collaborate on creating the best treatment protocol for the client. For example, somebody who has some social skills deficits might actually be working on improving those social skills in the context of group and then processing it a little bit more with the individual therapist as well. We hear that there are common groups such as Alcoholics Anonymous. There are groups in various hospices that occur to help people after they've had a loss, post-traumatic stress disorder people and the Veterans Administration and so on. What are the differences between a support group and a counseling group? provide a really important service to the community. There are a lot of therapeutic components of a regular counseling group or a process counseling group that you can derive in a support group. So what I mentioned before was installation of hope. In a support group, you certainly can also get the experience of universality, which is that, wow, there are other people that have similar experiences in me, similar feelings in me. You can certainly get the concept of somebody else being further along. Certainly in, in AA, you may join AA and find out, wow, this person has been sober for three years. I'm only sober one week. Now that I see that as a possibility, everything seems more potentially possible for me as well. So there are a lot of similar benefits between support groups and counseling groups. The major difference, though, is that counseling groups usually also focus on the here and now. So counseling groups are really focused on the interpersonal dynamics that occur among the members and use that information to be able to affect change. What we know about counseling groups or groups in general is that they form what we call a microcosm of society. So the way you are outside in the real world and the roles that you play are going to be likely to be the kind of roles that you play within a counseling group. Except in the safe, supportive counseling group, you can receive honest feedback and have an opportunity to gain a lot of insight into your behavior. The other difference between support groups and counseling groups are that very often in support group model, the idea is to give you support. It's not to necessarily help you to change a mental health problem. And also in support groups, because support is the goal, very often members are encouraged to socialize on the outside, to get together, to develop relationships outside of that group, depending, not always, but, but very often that's typical in support groups. And in most counseling groups, again, not all, there are differences. People are really asked usually not to socialize so that the power of the group is retained and that there are not a lot of side groups and side opportunities for things to happen, that whatever actually happens among members 
happens in the context of the group with the therapist present. I think that's an important difference. Over the years, I've seen people get together and they are basically support groups. They have the group and then they may go out to dinner together. Exactly. And that's a good thing. Having relationships in your life and real relationships is something that's important and it's good for one's mental health. So there's definitely a place for support groups, but what support groups are not really able to do is to provide what a trained group therapist would be able to provide, to provide direct validation, interpretation, allowing the client to make changes. And what about doing group therapy with young adolescents or children? I would imagine it's a different challenge, a different style. Group therapy is an extremely effective method of treatment for children and adolescents. Of course, children of five or six years old are not going to sit around and talk for an hour. That would not be realistic. Children learn through play. If you were to do group therapy with younger children, obviously play would need to be a part of the group. But through play, children tell their stories and they learn. And so we use a lot of therapeutic play techniques to be able to have the group be useful to the child and obviously to have them be able to be engaged. The same concepts that we find with adults in terms of the importance of cohesion, for example, is true for children as well. What you'll typically see when you get a group of children together for group therapy is that they may create a group name for themselves, for example, like we are the superheroes or we are the green frogs and that immediately starts to connect the members of the group as being part of something special that's really just for themselves. What's really interesting to me too is that very often I run a student training program and people will say to me, how does a five-year-old, for example, how can they get the concept of keeping things confidential? And you'd be surprised that children as young as four and five, they really can get the sense of what it means to have something be secret and this is really information that's just for us and that this is a place to share information that's really, again, just for our ears. A really cute story that happened not too long ago in one of our groups of kindergartners is there was a five-year-old and he was about to share something very personal from his family, something that happened between he and his father. And he was reluctant and very, very hesitant. He was about to share. The little girl next to him, also five years old, seeing how hesitant he was, put her hand on him and said, don't worry, each of us have things that we may be scared to share with other people. Like I wear pull-ups and I've really never told anybody, but I feel okay to share that here. So it's pretty incredible that they really can already get a sense of the importance of what group is and what it's about. Certainly for teenagers, group therapy is a wonderful, wonderful mode of treatment because teens, by definition, that age, they listen to their peers. Peers are extremely important. So getting a bunch of teenagers together they can really call each other out on their behaviors. They can be incredibly honest with each other, and that becomes a huge opportunity for change. How common is group therapy in our communities? I know in hospitals there will be groups. In jails we'll see groups. Obviously, Alcoholics Anonymous is a group. It's a very powerful modality, but is it used widely enough 
there are some practical issues regarding groups. For example, if I were to have a private practice, though I may be particularly fond of group therapy, it may not be realistic for me to be able to get a number of people to meet together a specific hour every week religiously. In certain settings, though, groups become a more viable treatment. So in prison setting, you have a captive audience. In a psychiatric hospital, you have people that are together all the time. That is one of the reasons that groups are really able to be employed there. We know the efficacy of group therapy. We just have to have some of the logistics be able to work. In some of those settings, group therapy can be particularly effective because some of the therapeutic factors of group may apply more to one setting than another. In a prison setting, for example, the therapist can actually model appropriate pro-social behavior, which would be really important to a lot of these inmates, most of whom are going to be going back out on the street one day. Also, the fact that you have the other members of the group who are living together in prison, they can call each other out on their behavior. So if one of the skills that are being worked on in group or we're looking at the inmate anger, for example, and a client says how well they're working the group and how they're managing their anger, if they were in one-on-one -on -one individual therapy, the therapist would accept that as true in a group setting somebody in the group can say, really? Because I saw you the other day take that tray in the cafeteria and bop it over somebody's head. And so there's a lot of opportunity in certain settings to actually call each other out on their behavior, and that can actually create an advantage over individual therapy in certain settings. And that can make the group therapy process extraordinarily powerful and grounded in reality. Thank you for taking us on a walk through group therapy issues. Holly Katz is a psychologist. She is the clinical and training director at the Falk Center for Counseling in Boca Raton, Florida. Dr. Katz, thank you very much. Very interesting. Interesting. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.